Uh, but let me start by telling you that I like to think that I'm quite handy around the house when I'm rewiring a plug or fixing the washing machine, but I have been defeated by this. Now, putting up a picture, I, I introduced us to this picture of the carol service. You might recognize it. This is a picture of my family. I told you that I'd put it up in my room. Uh, that is true. I mean, it was true. It's obviously not there now. Uh, but I was defeated in my attempt to put it up properly. I was just using command strips. You know those kind of Velcro strips that stick it to the wall? But it means that you've got to make sure that you're putting it level. You can't adjust it once it's there. Uh, and you've got to make sure that it's at the right height compared to other pictures in the room. Well, I tried to put a piece of string around the walls so that I could see what was behind me. I see the height. I tried to use a spirit level, but that was a bit too big, so I used an app on my phone to make sure it was level. And you can see where this went. It's a completely different height from the pictures on the opposite side of the wall, which looks fine, provided you're only looking in one direction and not looking from the end of the room. And as I realized this week, having given it a proper look, it's really, well, it was really skew. Uh, to take it down for this illustration was just a good thing. It was not good that I was trying to do this alone. <laughs> Verse 18 of our passage today. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. And it's worth saying that's a shocking start to our reading. We left last week with man in God's perfect garden paradise, commissioned to spread that garden across the world as a testimony to the goodness of God. It was perfection, at least in our eyes, but amazingly not in God's. It is not good for man to be alone. It wasn't perfect yet. A man had just been given this task, verse 15, to work the garden and keep it spread the knowledge of God's goodness around the world. Indeed, the task went on, verses 16 and 17, which we didn't discuss last week. We don't have time for this week. We're coming back to you next week. But essentially, man had been given this task, and into that context, God says, it's not good that man should be alone. Having been given a task, God said, it's not good that man shall be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Notice this isn't about loneliness. If we think this passage is God's answer to loneliness, we're going to end up in a complete mess. God doesn't offer to make him a companion, a solution to loneliness. No, a helper to help him with the task. Just as I needed help, really, to put up that picture. So the man needs help to spread the image of God around the globe. And so the rest of this passage is designed to answer the question, what does he need to complete the task? What help does he need to spread the knowledge of God around the world? That means that we're going to continue learning foundational lessons in this passage. Along with the rest of this section, Genesis 2 to 4, we're picking up foundational lessons for our understanding of the world and our place within it. Foundational lessons to how we image God. Indeed, this particular passage is so foundational, it gets a huge amount of use in the rest of the Bible and quoted in the New Testament. But that also means that because we live in a culture that is distancing itself more and more from the teaching of the Bible, we're going to find today challenging. It's teaching that unpicks numerous ways in which our society has abandoned God's design for the world. 60 years ago, this would have been just pretty obvious. But now, i I don't think I've ever preached a passage at St. Helens with more controversial ideas in it. 
And yet we have the opportunity this evening to listen to our creator God speaking to us in Genesis 2 and helping us to understand the world that he has made and why he's made it that way, which is brilliant and exciting and gives us, well, we've only got time for three lessons, three significant lessons this evening. And you can see the first on the handouts. Animals are an insufficient helper. Look again at verse 19. So out of the ground, the Lord God had uh, formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. I guess this could feel like a slightly odd part of the passage, couldn't it? After all, we already know that what man really needs is a woman. And I reckon God knew that as well, right? But notice how every detail of this bit emphasizes the superiority of man over the animals. Uh, He names all the creatures. Though they, like he, had been formed out of the ground, there's a fundamental difference between humanity and the rest of the animals. Indeed, at the end of verse 20, for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him, uh, no one who could help him do the task. Humans are fundamentally distinct from and superior to animals. That was important for Moses' hearers. Uh, The Israelites, as they were heading into the land of promise, were surrounded by people who thought that God could be imaged by animals. In fact, even Israel had tried to produce a golden calf to image God. But no, God has formed his image, humanity, us. And even though that image is now marred and corrupted... Humans are still the unique image bearers of God's. Humans are fundamentally different, superior to animals, because only humans can complete the task of imaging God's. And if you think that's all very obvious, that's not a lesson that we need to learn anymore, let me tell you to get out a little bit more. (laughs) There is an increasing movement to try and claim that we are just like every other animal, that there is no fundamental difference. The Australian philosopher Peter Singer is credited uh, with a lot of the, uh, for making a significant contribution to that movement. His book, Animal Liberation, published in 1975. And now, let me be clear, I'm not trying to encourage us to be cruel to animals. That's the big thing that he's trying to uh, work against. We've been given stewardship of God's creation and should be good and uh, do that well. But his philosophical reasoning is, well, it's horrifying. Let me read this quote. There will surely be some non-human animals whose lives, by any standards, are more valuable than the lives of some humans. A chimpanzee, dog, or pig, for instance, will have a higher degree of self-awareness and a greater capacity for meaningful relations with others than a severely retarded infant or someone in a state of advanced senility. So if we base the right of life on these characteristics, and he does, We must grant these animals a right to life as good as or better than such retarded or senile humans. Do you see what he's saying? He claims there's some animals that have more right to life than some humans. It is a shocking idea. But if you thought it was just Peter Singer, you'd be wrong. I'm hesitant to mention what I'm about to say tonight, because I realize it will be hard for some of us to hear. 
But we need to recognize how widespread this perspective is in society today. We live in a society where it is socially acceptable to oppose the eating of meat, but where it is inacceptable to oppose termination of pregnancy, where the rights of some animals are considered more important than the rights of unborn children, where it is progressive to cry, meat is murder, but to say the same of termination of pregnancy is outdated. Now, I realize that even the discussion of these things will be really painful for some of us here. Now, there's loads more that I'd like to say about this topic if we had time, but it is an issue, if it's an issue that's personal for you, please speak to someone about it, uh, to me or your Bible study leader or any of the members of staff here. Know that there will not be judgment for you. As we've already said this evening, the wonderful news of the gospel is that Jesus has washed us there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, whatever you've done. Jesus said to a death row convict, today you will be with me in paradise. There's real genuine forgiveness available to everyone, whatever you've done. But as we come to God's foundational teaching in Genesis, we need to see where the ideas of our society have departed from his. Our society no longer recognizes our unique superiority over animals. It's overturned the order in utterly tragic ways, and it is wrong to do so. Every human life has supreme value because we've been made in the image of God. Animals were made as part of God's good creation, but they weren't made to be image bearers. They are an insufficient helper. Only humans can do the task. Which is why God creates women God creates the woman. Point two, woman is the ideal helper. End of verse 20. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And you see the idea? Animals were not up to the task. And so the Lord God did the only thing that could have worked. He made another human. And there's various things about her which the text highlights. Firstly, she's equal. Verse 23, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She's the same as me, says Adam. We're equal. Even the name which he gives her communicates that. Woman, in both Hebrew and in English, is a word that deliberately communicates. It sounds very similar to, the, uh, to man. The 17th century minister, Matthew Henry, put it like this. Not made out of his head to top him nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him. And then he gets cheesy when he says, under his arm to be protected and near his heart to be beloved. <laughs> but I think the rest of that, it's true, isn't it? Equal. And to an ancient world where men took advantage of their natural strength, this was a radical teaching. Indeed, to every society where the tragic abuse of women by men has continued, this is a radical 
beautiful and essential teaching. Men and women are equal. At the same time, she's different. She's a woman, not a man. God could have made another man, but he chose to make a woman, a second gender. And notice that's a binary difference, two. Not three genders, not four, and not two ends of a spectrum, just two, man and woman. That's very clear throughout the Bible. From Genesis 1, male and female, he created them, all the way through to the end of Revelation. There is never a hint there should be any more than two. Nor is there any suggestion that there's a distinction between sex and gender. What is communicated now in our culture is that they're two different things. But various bits of the Bible suggest that my gender is the same as my sex. God has decided what my gender is. It's not an idea that was assigned at birth, a mere cultural concept, but a physical reality written into the DNA of our very first cell and copied into almost every single cell of your body. Again, I'm aware that might be painful for some of us here. Because we now live in a broken world, there's rare occasions where it's medically ambiguous what sex someone is. But more commonly, there are those whose sense of their own gender identity doesn't fit with the body they find themselves in. That may well be true for some in this room. It's certainly true for many in London. And if that's you, please know that I am personally very glad that you're here. As a church, we want to draw alongside you in the pain of that disconnect, that experience, not to judge you for it. Please speak to someone about it. Again, chat to me or your small group leader or a member of staff here. But let's not compound that pain by encouraging people to work against the bodies that God has given to them. Your gender has been given to you by God and written into your DNA. It's deeply tragic to watch the world mutilate the bodies that God has given us rather than help people through the pain of that conflict. Let's make sure that we are a church that helps, that welcomes and gets alongside those whose experience of the world is so tragically at odds with God's good design, which after all, in the end, is all of us, isn't it? God has made men and women equal and different. And that difference is complementary. Notice the way that the role is described all the way through the passage. Verse 18, I will make a helper fit for him. Again in verse 20, for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. A footnote too gives us another option. Uh, helper corresponding to him. I quoted Gordon Wenham last week. He has two other helpful suggestions, matching him or like opposite him. Uh, and then he goes on. It seems to express the notion of complementarity rather than identity. Uh, in other words, the, men, the man and the woman are equal, but they're not identical. They have differences which complement one another. Uh, that's an idea that comes across with helper, doesn't it? doing what the man alone couldn't do. Uh, the differences of role are filled out in the rest of the Bible, but even here you get a sense of the difference. Man is given some sort of position of leadership, what's sometimes called headship. Uh, he's made first. He's given the tasks of verses 15 to 17 before the woman is made. That's why he names her, always in the Bible, a, a sign of some sort of position of authority. 
It's why even though Eve sinned first, as we'll see next week, Adam is the one who's held responsible for it throughout the rest of the Bible. A woman then is created to be a helper, to complement his leadership by working alongside him to complete the work that God has given us to do. Not that every man is the head of every woman, but that within the family and within God's family, the church, men should exercise leadership and women should complement that work as helpers. I think again of me with the, the picture. I needed some help. I tried uh, tools, the string, the spirit level. It didn't help me at all. I needed another person, a person who had just as much claim to being able to say that we put, put up the picture, but who needed to take on a different role. Another person holding up the picture wouldn't have helped. I needed someone to step back and view the whole scene and tell me that I was getting it completely wrong. I needed somebody to play a complementary role. I needed a helper. None of which makes any comment on value. We live in a world that says your value is determined by your role, which I think is a really disgusting idea. Every human has been made in the image of God, which gives us profound, infinite value. We shouldn't look to our role for value. And just as both people might be said to have put up the picture with neither role making a comment on their value, or so in God's creation, men and women are responsible for the task of spreading the knowledge of his goodness across the world without either role making a comment on their value. Earlier this week, I was talking to Tiff, who's on the staff team here, looking, uh, working particularly with women in the city, and she commented on how much she loves this idea. In fact, she said to me again this evening how much she embraces this role of helper in the ministry that she's engaged in, how she proud she is to be called a helper. After all, the idea of helper is used elsewhere in Scripture to speak of God. God himself describes himself as a helper in Deuteronomy and in many of the Psalms. If anything, we might be tempted to say that helper is a higher role. But again, Wenham is helpful at stopping us from getting that wrong. He says this, To help someone does not imply that the helper is stronger than the helped, simply that the latter's strength is inadequate by itself. And that ultimately is the big point here, isn't it? That man alone is inadequate. The woman is necessary. Remember verse 18. It's not good that the man should be alone. He is not up to the task. Men are not enough. Man alone cannot complete the task, cannot spread the knowledge of God's goodness around the world. For a start, you're not going to get very far with one person. But more than that, men and women have different and complementary temperaments and gifts and ways of approaching things. To complete the work God has given us to do, to spread the knowledge of him around the world, requires us both equal, different, complementary humans, men and women working together as a team. That's why the man is so thrilled when he sees her. And you see what he says in verse 23? Yeah! That's a paraphrase. (laughs) But he's saying, at last, she's perfect. She's exactly what I needed. God's making of the woman is yet another example of his overwhelming goodness and his generous provision for the work. Male and female, he created them. What was not good is now, to use the language of chapter one, very good. But when it comes to enabling us to complete the task, 
God has one more crowning element to his creation. Point three, marriage is the perfect capstone. That's what comes through in verse 24, isn't it? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here is the the capstone, the climax of the creation account. And it's clearly meant to be seen as good. And notice from verse 25, they're free from shame. The senses were complete openness with one another. No secrets, nothing to hide. More than that, it's the coming together of that which was separate. The bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh from Adam is united to him again. The beautiful one flesh union of man and wife. As the narrative of God's creation reaches its climax, the capstone of God's creation is a marriage. And in our modern society, we need to affirm the goodness of marriage. Some can get very obsessed with marriage as though it's the solution to everything, but others can start to suggest that actually marriage is a terrible thing. Modern thinkers have started to describe the traditional family as an evil thing, even as far back as the 1970s. The feminist writer Shulamith Firestone dreamed of a day when the tyranny of the biological family would be broken. And today's thinkers are the philosophical children of such writers, seeking in so many ways to undermine the picture of marriage. But no, this doesn't reflect tyranny. This is God's good gift to the world. And of course, if it's God's gift, then we need to recognize his design for it. Marriage is not an exercise in creative interpretation, but the beautifully designed crowning glory of God's creation. Each element of his design is crucial. The man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. It's permanent. He holds fast. It's exclusive. He leaves his old family and holds fast to her. It's a complementary union of one man and one woman. The man holds fast to his wife. A permanent, exclusive marriage between one man and one woman. This is the context for which God designed sex, the only context the Bible ever recognizes as the right context for sex. Whenever the Bible makes comment on any departure from this design, it is always negative. But we live in a society that has chosen to abandon each element of this design, whether that's the normalization of sex before marriage or the rise of divorce or the embracing of same-sex marriage. We live in a world that's deeply confused about this good gift of God and has lost all connection to this beautiful design. And rather than drawing us back to God's design for marriage, the church in this country has failed to uphold this standard. The Church of England, which is the denomination to which we belong, has long since abandoned the Bible's restrictions on divorce, now permitting it in any number of circumstances the Bible doesn't describe. At the moment, it's going through a period of discernment to make a call on whether we should allow same-sex marriage as well. In a society which is so confused, we've had the opportunity to uphold God's design for marriage, and instead we've been seen to distance ourselves from it. Now, I don't pick on divorce or same-sex marriage because they are worse than any other departure from this design. On the contrary, the Bible persistently calls out any departure from Genesis 2 
as sinful. Uh, Jesus said that if we think lustfully, it is to commit adultery in our hearts. All of us will be aware of our failures in this area, whether in thought or word or deed. We are all sexual sinners here, myself included. But we do need to uphold God's design for marriage and for sex within marriage. This is his idea, his creation. He knows how it works. However painful it might be to embrace his design, it is much better for us than trying to work against it. Now, as I've been saying all evening, if you're struggling with this, please talk to someone about it. You won't be the only person struggling with this bit. Indeed, if you'd like to find out about a group of Christians at St. Helens who attempted in the era of same-sex attraction but seeking to live Jesus' way, grab me or Luke after the service or your small group leader to chat more about it. A marriage is good. It is designed. And finally, it is purposeful. Remember where we've come from. Verse 18, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. This passage is about God enabling man to complete his task. A passage about how we spread the knowledge of God across the world. And crowning God's answer to that question is this wonderful institution, the gift of marriage. And when we follow God's design for it, it really does help us to spread the knowledge of God. The faithfulness of marriage, speaking of God's extraordinary faithfulness to his people. The permanence of marriage, speaking of God's permanent commitment to his people. The complementarity of marriage, depicting the relationship of God and his people. Corrupt any element of that design and, well, you communicate something wildly different about God. But follow that design and it is a beautiful picture of his enduring love and faithfulness. And yet ultimately, earthly marriage fulfills its purpose by pointing to a greater marriage. The great marriage at the climax of the Bible story. Just flick forward as we draw to a close to page 1178. And you should find yourselves in Ephesians 5. I said there's lots of places that pick up the language of Genesis 2, but Ephesians 5 is a particularly important reference because it doesn't just allude to Genesis 2, it quotes it outright. Ephesians 5 and verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's Genesis 2. We've just had that in Genesis. But Paul goes on, this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Do you see, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. The extraordinary gift of marriage, God's institution back in Genesis 2, was never really itself the perfect capstone. It was always designed to point forward to the eternal relationship of Jesus and his people. Jesus, the greatest revelation of God's goodness, the loving bridegroom who gave himself for us that we might be washed clean, as it says just before in Ephesians 5. Even before Jesus came, even before the fall, which we'll read about next week, God established marriage as a kind of trailer a picture in his creation of the gospel, the extraordinary relationship between Jesus and his church. 
The two made one in marriage is a picture of the two made one in the gospel, which we've been thinking about all evening, which we've been singing about. One with Jesus loved and cherished, chosen as his holy bride. The bride will run to her lover's arms, giving glory to Emmanuel. As we'll sing at the end of our time together, from heaven, Jesus came and sought her to be his holy bride. Earthly marriage, it's only ever the trailer. And it fulfills its purpose to spread the knowledge of God as it points forward to the marriage, the marriage of Christ to his church. Just a trailer, but in Christ's marriage to his church, we have the real film, the perfect capstone. And the one which all of us, single or married, will get to enjoy God's goodness for eternity. Uh, We need to finish Let me return to our opening question. How are we going to complete the task? Uh, For putting out that picture, I just needed to ask for some help from my flatmate. That's that's on me. (laughs) But what is needed to spread the knowledge of God around the world? Moses here is needed to have that question answered as they enter the land of promise, charged with the uh, charge to make the goodness of God known. They needed to know how to complete that task. And they particularly needed Genesis 2 because the cultures around them had messed up views of animals and of gender and of sex and marriage. Genesis 2 implored them, don't follow the practices of the world around you. Animals can't image God. Humans are God's unique image bearers, men and women, both equal, different, complementary with the capstone of marriage, an institution designed to aid their image-bearing role. Well, so also for us. Doesn't Genesis 2 implore us the same way? As our culture runs away from the teaching of the Bible and ends up with messed up views of animals and of gender and of sex and marriage, don't follow the practices of the world around you. Our humanity Our gender and our sexuality, they've been given to us as opportunities to proclaim the glories of God. Whoever we are, men or women, married or single, let's use every chance we have to proclaim the goodness of God. And whoever we are, married or single, we have the same perfect capstone as the climax to it all. The marriage for which all other marriages are just teaser trailers the marriage of Christ to his church. And some of us will get to be part of that trailer, in which case make sure your marriage is the trailer that it is supposed to be. But all of us get to be part of the film. And while we're waiting for it to begin, let's make sure as many people as possible get to hear about it. Let me lead us in a prayer. Our Father, it is a wonder to us that we, mere humans, should have been created by you as your image bearers, men and women. How we thank you for the role that you have given to us. Thank you for the roles that you have given to us, particularly as men and women. And thank you for the wonderful gift of marriage. Please, we pray, would you help us to embrace your design for all these things, but even more than that, We pray you would grow our anticipation of, appreciation of, and joy in the great marriage that you promised to us in the future that every Christian will one day enjoy. 
And we pray that you would help us now to spread the knowledge of your very great goodness with every opportunity that you've given to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we've got lots of questions. If you want to send them in uh, during while we're answering them, you, you still can. Um, thanks so much for all that have already sent in. and uh, uh, Thanks, Tim, for preaching for us. Um, why don't we start with some of the ones that came in first, if that's all right. Um, someone's asked, what about singleness? Am I inferior to people getting married? I hope not. Um, I'm single, for those who don't know, so I really hope I'm not inferior. I also think that biblically that's not the case. Um, marriage is a wonderful gift, and I think I want to affirm very clearly the Bible's clear teaching that it is a great gift because we live in a culture that is increasingly negative on a biblical understanding of marriage. But that doesn't mean that if we don't experience marriage, we are inferior. Um, I was looking at 1 Corinthians 7 with some of our trainees earlier this week, which speaks very positively about singleness. If you've never read it before, go and give it a read. It's an excellent um, encouragement to to those of us who are single. You could also have a read of Isaiah 56, uh, which gives a wonderful poetic way of seeing God's positive view of singleness. Uh, It calls us eunuchs. Don't be upset about that. Uh, But it is ultimately talking about single people. Yeah, I think that's... um, To to use the illustration from from the sermon, marriage is a wonderful gift, but it is the trailer of the even greater marriage that will happen in eternity. Uh, God is going to make sure that every one of his people marries his son. We will all get married, um, but some of us have the opportunity to enjoy the gift of marriage now. Others of us get the opportunity to enjoy the gift of singleness for even more of our lives. Thank you. And the author moves very quickly from God creating woman... Uh, to help the man, to speaking of marriage. Is God really saying we, women help men in general in the task given to Adam, or is it primarily a comment on how a husband and wife do this together? I think the fact that God describes the helper before they get married makes this a comment about men and women, but certainly that is seen most clearly in the family context, uh, the family of normal sort of household family and the family of the church. So when you see these complementary roles worked out elsewhere in the Bible, it is most frequently seen in the leading of a family and in the the leadership of God's people. Um, I think it's hard to think of examples beyond that because the Bible tends to focus lots of its attention on families and on God's people. Uh, But certainly that seems to be the biggest way that it's worked out. Does that answer the question? I think so. You can come and grab me afterwards if you think I didn't. do you mind showing us where you get the, the idea that the task um, to spread the knowledge of God around the world is? Yeah, so I tried to do this last week, but thank you for asking that if it wasn't, uh, wasn't clear from before. Partly, I think that's set up in chapter one. This is Luke's material from before, that having made man, uh, men and women in his image, chapter one, verse 28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Uh, And there's a slight difference in that commission from what he said to the other animals, because these are his image bearers that he wants to fill the earth, and not just with loads of people, but to subdue the earth. So there's a sense in which uh, they're supposed to do something to the world that he's given them. And then when we get to chapter 2, and he zooms in on particular features that we're exploring last week, we're told, chapter 2, verse 5, that no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. We're about to discover a Garden of Eden, of which I have a little bit of a picture behind me. Um, We're about to get a garden, but before that, there is no garden, no garden because there's no people. And so God creates humanity to establish a garden that he's made to work it and keep it. 
Now, it could be that that's simply, I've made this little garden in this little place, and I don't really care about the rest of the world. But given what he said back in chapter one, it doesn't seem like he's just limiting it to one little garden arena. He wants the whole world to be filled with a knowledge of him, that his image bearers are to spread. And that's not just about a little garden that they tend and then producing loads of babies to go around the world, uh, but they are to fill the earth with a knowledge of God's goodness as they work the whole ground and spread this garden around the whole thing. Again, if you want to talk to me more about that, then do, but that's, that's roughly where I'm getting the idea from. Thank you. Genesis 2 suggests that we shouldn't go against God's design of nature, that there are two genders or sexes. Uh, Tim, you use the word mutilate against God's design. When God causes people to be sick, would that not suggest that people should not treat themselves as it is against the, na- the nature that God has created? What does the Bible say about this? So some of this, that's a really good question. Thank you for asking that question. Um, some of this needs a bit more understanding of what we're going to see over the next couple of weeks. Uh, so even though God's design for uh, men and women in, and marriage in Genesis 2 um, is in the rest of the Bible, um, even, sorry, let me start again. In, uh, in Genesis 3, we're going to see that the world gets broken. Uh, everything goes wrong next week. I'm sorry, that's a bit of a spoiler. Um, but you knew that already. Everything gets broken. And that means that there are all sorts of things that we experience in the world that are not like Genesis 2. Uh, there's all sorts of things. I, I was really unwell a couple of weeks ago and was really quite sick. And I wanted to get better and I would have taken anything that would have made me feel better. Not because I was trying to go against nature, but because I wanted to get closer to Genesis 2. I wanted to be closer to the experience of God's perfect world. When we, um, when we work in sickness to try and restore people's health, that is not about going against nature. That's about trying to bring people closer to uh, the good, ordered world that God originally made. But when we work against God's design for gender and sex, uh, there we're working against it. Uh, we're working in the direction of the broken world rather than trying to restore I think I find that a helpful way of just thinking about all, all these different areas. Am I trying to work against God's design as he originally intended it? Or am I trying to work towards God's design as he made me and you? Thank you. How do we know firmly that gender really isn't a spectrum? Does the passage give us any clear indications that there really are just two genders? Could the passage just miss, out, miss this out because it's outdated? Genesis 1 verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So it's very clearly describing both of those genders and only those two genders. And whenever anyone later on in the Bible departs from the idea of either being male or female, the Bible condemns it. That is to say, God, in his inspired words, tells us that that's not not right. God is the creator of the world. He made us. He has determined how many genders there are, and he's told us there's two. So in Deuteronomy 22 and in 1 Corinthians 11, when there's any sort of departure from men being men and women being women, God says, that's not right. I want to say that knowing that that is a really controversial thing to say in our culture, but one that we want to affirm as Christians because it is for our good, it is better for us to be working towards Genesis 2 rather than away from it. 
And let me say, if that is something that is especially painful for you, I don't say it unsympathetically. I can't imagine the pain that you're going through, and I'd love to talk to you. Uh, but please, let's not, in an effort to be sympathetic, drive people away from God's good design for them. Thanks, Tim. Um, there's a couple of questions about history here. I might read them both, if that's okay. Are Adam and Eve real historical people, and does it matter? And to what extent are the events in Genesis to be taken as factual? For instance, Genesis 5 seems to have quite a clear genealogy. How does this fit with the age of humanity? I think, again, Gordon Wenham has a very helpful point when he talks about chapter 2, verse 4. Chapter 2, verse 4, these are the generations of, which is the same line that introduces all of the later, um, the later individuals in Genesis. And he points out that that suggests the writer thinks that the people introduced in Genesis 2 and 3 are as real as the people introduced in the other major sections of Genesis. Indeed, the rest of the Bible affirms that the characters in Genesis are real people. Jesus himself speaks of many of the characters in Genesis as real people who lived before he walked the earth. And I think it does matter that we believe Adam to be a real person, Adam and Eve to be real people who did what we describe here. Um, we, we're we're going to see that because of what Adam and Eve did, uh, the world is broken. Uh, those of you who've been studying Romans recently have seen that Adam is mentioned there as a real person whose, whose, con whose, whose actions have had real consequences in the world that we live in. And those of us looking at 1 Corinthians 15 on the winter student getaway at the beginning of term saw a similar thing uh, there of Adam. The whole Bible affirms that Adam is a real person whose consequences have had an impact on our world. And I only need to switch on the news to see that his actions have had consequences in our world. The brokenness of this world is testimony to the reality of Adam and his actions in the world that we live in. And so, yes, I think he's a real person. As for trying to date things, I think that's a much more tricky thing. Um, you will know more about the Hebrew of this than me, uh, but to say that this is necessarily an exact... <laughs> hospital pass. Uh, uh, but to say that this is necessarily uh, a genealogy that includes all of the people that could have... That could be descended, I think, is slightly trickier. To say that someone fathered, I understand, might be as the, the to say someone is the father might be the other male ancestor of, but not necessarily one generation. It might be, yeah. I actually think that if you follow the dates in Genesis 5, they actually work as a genealogy. I think you have to do the work on that yourself. Um, there's lots of um, ways to try and think, people try and sort of circumvent that. But the people who should die in the flood, according to the dating, do die in the flood, which I think suggests to me, not every Christian would agree with this, but that essentially, from, essentially it's a historical thing. Now, I do think history before the flood is a little bit fuzzy and things are a little bit different. It's sort of a lost world before then. But I do think it is presented. Moses knows what ages are. He knows what years are. I do think they're presented as it, but not everyone would agree with that. And that's quite different from saying that Genesis 1 is describing days in a 24-hour period. Years are clearly used as years, but days in Genesis 1 are used as part of the framing of a, an ordered and filled world. Um, so, yeah, I, I think years, yes, days, slightly different. Thank you, that's helpful. There's a couple of questions now, um, again, about complementarity, if I read, read a few of them out. How far do we take this complementarity? Obviously in marriage, but then the church and wider society, and why? What does this mean for women in business, for example? Do you mean um, 
you think women can't be CEOs, etc. And just on the same theme, but slightly different. Um, observation, all of us have a wedding day to come, the perfect capstone. Marriage now is the only foreshadow, but a foreshadow nonetheless. And um, what does it look like for a single woman to be a helper? Sorry if that's too many at once. Can you ask that last, yeah. can you ask that last question again? Because I don't think it is the only foreshadowing of, of the great day to come. Uh, as for complementarity, how far does it work? I've said a little bit on this. I think it is clearly expressed in the family and in God's uh, family, the church, and throughout the Bible. Beyond that, I think we have opportunities to express something of the roles that we've been given, but I don't think the Bible forbids other ways of working. Um, so uh, to speak of uh, female CEOs, the New Testament talks of Lydia working um, out in, uh, in cloth making, I think, possibly. Mm -hmm. um, I'm getting a nod from the back. Uh, there, there's, there's clear business that goes on. Proverbs 31 that speaks of, um, uh, speaks of the ideal wife, speaks of her engaged in business. And I don't think the Bible ever condemns anyone for that sort of role. Uh, I think there is clearly a, uh, a danger that we could overstate, go beyond what the Bible says by forbidding what the Bible doesn't forbid. But where I have opportunities to take a lead, even when it's not as the, the leader of the, the student at work here, I try and do that because I think it's a good thing. And because I think we have a culture that's very negative about men taking the lead. Um, I, I want to encourage guys who will feel like you are doing the wrong thing because you're told that by culture. It is a good thing to take the lead. And particularly in spiritual um, a spiritual context. When you're praying at the end of a small group Bible study, are you letting the girls do it first? Or are you going to pray up? There's nothing sinful about um, uh, someone else praying first. But why not take a lead? Why not show people that you are actually interested in this uh, rather than taking your lead from everyone else? Uh, let me encourage you uh, in that. Uh, and girls, similarly, I, I'm not saying hold back. But um, show, show guys that you appreciate their leadership uh, where you do because I think a lot of the time that's being worked against. And do the wonderful helping that you're doing. I'm so grateful for the wonderful ministry of women in this church, um, of which there's loads of wonderful examples, and I'm sure all of us have seen them. I'd keep going. Thank you. Um, we've only got time for that question again, I repeat, but there's lots of good questions here. Do come and speak to him afterwards, or do chat about it together at After Eight with an open Bible and have a look at um, what you think. <laughs> Um, there's a, good, a number of questions about 1 Corinthians 7, and there's a sermon series in, going in, the, in the morning at the moment, going through 1 Corinthians. In a couple of weeks, we're looking at, or maybe more than a couple of weeks, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 7, and that would be a great talk to download and listen to uh, if you're interested in finding out more about that. But just that, that question again, uh, Tim. So it starts with the observation that all of us have a wedding day to come, the perfect capstone. Marriage now is only a foreshadow, but a foreshadow nonetheless. And what does it look like for a single woman to be a helper? Although, sorry, I think you've already addressed that. And I think you said that the question had something about that's the only foreshadow? I think I must have misread it. I'm so well, sorry. <laughs> let me answer the misread question. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really important to say we all get opportunities to give a glimpse of that wonderful day in the future. Being here this evening is a wonderful glimpse of the gathered people of God. Uh, we get other glimpses of it in the Bible, but this is an expression of that. As we gather together and, um, and encourage one another to love our Lord Jesus, we're giving one another a little glimpse of what it's going to be like to be gathered on that day with the rest of God's people. 
There are various ways the Bible gives us to be able to enjoy pictures of that great new creation hope. And if I don't get to enjoy one of them, I'm going to be honest, sometimes I find that hard. But I'm not missing out on the marriage, and I'm not missing out on the opportunity to picture that day. I'm just missing out on one particular way. And if I get to enjoy the real thing, then maybe I shouldn't worry so much. You can tell me this. Tell me this when you speak to me later. Stop worrying so much about the picture that you are missing. Thanks very much, Tim.